Hello again, I'm Tony Payne and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. Over the past few weeks, I've been chatting with the trainees at Campus Bible Study about preaching. Preaching is one of the things they're going to learn as, as part of the traineeship. And we've been talking about what preaching really is and what the preaching task is. And I've come up with a slightly different way to describe that task as part of our conversation. It comes out of the PhD research I did several years ago now. And I'm not entirely sure yet whether I agree with myself, but I think there might be something to it. So I'm going to run it past you and see what you think. Here's a newish definition of preaching to run past you. Well, at least it's a newish angle from which to view what we're trying to do when we preach. And by preach, incidentally, I just mean what we normally mean in our circles by that word, to publicly expound a passage of Scripture. As I said, I ended up thinking about this quite a lot more than I expected to do uh, while I was working on the PhD between 2015 and 2018. My actual topic for the dissertation was actually all the other word ministry that happens in a Christian community apart from preaching. The one another speech, the edifying, encouraging, exhorting, admonishing speech of Christians to one another in a Christian community. That was my focus. But thinking about that and investigating that subject required me to think about preaching, teaching kind of speech as well, in order to understand and differentiate the two. Because there are kind of two broad kinds of speech, it seems to me, in the New Testament, in the Christian community. There's the, the one-to-many communication that the preaches and teaches and applies the word to the whole congregation, the, the function of pastoral leadership to do that. But there's also the one-another communication that applies that word and spreads it and ministers that word to each other in all sorts of different ways. Now, in the course of all of this and trying to understand what preaching teaching was and how it related to the one another word, I found myself dabbling quite a bit in what's called speech act theory. Uh, those of you who've been to theological college, oh, I don't know, sometime in the last 10 years or so, or 15 years, will probably have run across this, but you may not have. It's a currently popular way of thinking about how language works, and it rests on the insight that all language is a form of action, hence the name speech act, that when we say something, we're not just saying something, we're always doing something when we speak through the words that come out of our mouths. We might be explaining, that's an action, to explain something to someone, or we might be answering a question. We might be promising or commanding or warning or entertaining or exclaiming or interjecting or declaring or exhorting or comforting and so on and so forth. There are lots and lots of verbs that describe what we're doing when we speak, because normally when we speak, we have some purpose or intent for speaking. Now, Speech Act Theory goes into quite some detail possibly too much detail, to analyse and describe this process of what we're doing when we speak, what sort of action the speech is. And putting it rather simplistically, Speech Act Theory differentiates three main aspects of any utterance, of any speech. There's the action of the speech, that is, the kind of thing we're actually doing when we speak, that is, promising or telling or as I'm doing now, for example, explaining or educating and so on. Secondly, there's the content, the propositional content of 
the speech. That is, what it is that you're promising or what it is you're explaining or asking and so on. And then there's a hoped-for result or outcome of the speech, the consequence that you're expecting or hoping will happen as a result of the action you're taking. So if I'm explaining, then the hoped-for outcome is understanding on your part. Or if it's promising, then I'm hoping that you will believe the promise or act on the promise, perhaps, or trust it, and so on. So every speech has an action to it. It has propositional content and it has a hoped-for outcome. And a number of biblical scholars have picked up on this idea and applied it to Scripture, very interestingly. Kevin Van Hooser is probably the most prominent one who's done this, and his book, The Drama of Doctrine, is really centered around this idea. That is, that when God speaks in Scripture, he's always doing something, uh, hence the idea of drama. There's, there's always something happening when God speaks. He speaks for a purpose or an intent. That is, he declares or explains or judges or teaches or urges or commands and so on when he speaks. He speaks to fulfill his covenant purposes, to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. And he does that through the words he speaks, the words of the human author of Scripture. And so like all speech, this speech action of God that God is doing has a certain content, it has certain propositional elements, certain truths, certain things that are being acted with, and it has certain expected outcomes. It, it has an intent or a purpose to it. You might say that God's speech is living, it's active, and it's purposive. It has an intent. Now, the biblically alert among you might have already figured this out, even without the geniuses of speech act theory to help you. That is, you might have read and believed some of the famous verses of the Bible. For example, this one from Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The thing for which I sent it. God is, is doing something whenever he speaks. His speech has a purpose. He sends it for a reason and does something through it. It's active. And speech act theory really just sort of highlights this and describes it in a basically helpful way, it seems to me, so long as you don't get too carried away. Now, what has all this got to do with preaching? Well, some other clever chaps, and I'm thinking most notably of the British evangelical scholar Timothy Ward, they've argued that if God's word can be seen as an action in this way, as something that God does, then what we're doing when we preach is that we're reenacting God's action, God's word, for our congregation. A sermon in this conception is a bit like a re-performing of a classic stage play, but in a new context with maybe some updated language and a different set, but with the same content and the same purpose or intent as the original. And this brings us to the newish definition of preaching that I've been thinking about and that I want to run past you. If all this is helpful and is true, then we could say that our goal when we preach is to do for our hearers what God was doing 
in the passage of Scripture we're expounding. I'll say that again. Our goal when we preach is to do for our hearers what God was doing in the passage of Scripture we're expounding. Now, I say that this is a newish definition because, well, it's really just me summarizing some clever insights that other people have had. But it's also newish because it's only just a bit different from some of the definitions of preaching you might already have in your mind. Take, for example, this classic paragraph from Charles Simeon that I saw quoted in David Helm's book on expositional preaching. Simeon says, My endeavor is to bring out of Scripture what is there, and not to thrust in what I think might be there. I have a great jealousy on this head, never to speak more or less than I believe to be the mind of the Spirit in the passage I am expounding. It's been a commonplace and a common truth for a long time that what we're trying to do when we expound Scripture is expound what's there in the passage. Or to put it in terms that we're familiar with, um, that we've heard thanks to Haddon Robinson and others uh, in the 90s, uh, our goal when we preach is to let the big idea of the passage be the big idea of the sermon. Now, my newish definition is only a little bit different than that. It doesn't say let the big idea of the passage be the big idea of the sermon. It says let the action of the passage, let what God is doing in the passage, be what you do in the sermon. And I find this helpful. Perhaps it's only me. But I think it has some advantages over the big idea kind of approach. When I tend to look for the big idea in a passage, I tend to focus on that, on the ideas, on the propositional content that is key in the passage, on the key ideas and theological truths that are being communicated and how they fit together and how the argument works and so on. And I then kind of try to boil these down or summarize them or draw them together into a main truth or proposition that's the driving point of the passage and therefore of the sermon, and that's the big idea. And then I try and figure out a good way to explain that, a good structure for getting this big idea across in a compelling way for the congregation. And then, usually, often with a slight sense that I'm, I'm struggling or being a bit arbitrary, I try to look for a big idea-related application that is relevant to my hearers, and that's often the most difficult step. Now, this newish definition that I'm thinking about frames the process just a bit differently, because the goal is not just to identify the main truths or ideas of the passage, but what the speaker is doing with those truths or ideas. What is the action in the passage? What is God, through the human author, doing in the context of this passage, and for what expected outcome or response in the hearers or readers? I guess you could say, what divine transformative action is taking place in the passage itself? And how can I reenact or re-perform that action in my own context this Sunday? I find this a useful thought process, and especially for tackling what you might call application or where the sermon lands. Because rather than feeling like I need to construct an action step for the congregation that's relevant to them, for them to take in response. Instead, I look to what God was doing in the passage in the original context and the implied or explicit response that this speech action of God was driving towards and seeking, and then frame the purpose and landing point of my own sermon accordingly. 
And that means there may be all kinds of different landing points depending on the kind of action. If what the passage is doing is really explaining or expounding an idea, then the landing point or the response might be to understand and to trust that idea. It might not even be a particular form of doing or action or a particular practical step. So our goal when we preach is to do for our hearers what God was doing in the passage of Scripture we're expounding. What do you think of that as a definition? Is that a definition of the kind of preaching you want to practice or that you want to train others in or even that you want to listen to? I'm really interested to hear what you think. Now, there are some big questions lurking here that I haven't dealt with, of course. For example, it was the contention in the Reformation times that when God's word was being faithfully and truthfully preached, then the word of God itself was being spoken by the preacher. Uh, Bullinger famously said, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And this was a common reformed idea. Perhaps we could rephrase that idea in light of the discussion we've just had. Perhaps when God does again through us in our sermon what he was doing in the text of Scripture, then he truly is speaking his word through us to his people. What do you think of that? Does that work? I think it might. Another big issue, of course, which my PhD spent quite a lot of time thinking about, if this is indeed the nature of preaching, if it's a representation or a reenactment of what the text itself is doing, then is that also true whenever we reenact or re-perform or redo what God was doing in the text of Scripture? Is it true when two or three people are doing it in a little group together as they open the Bible? When we do for each other in our speech what the text itself is doing? Is the word then being spoken truly and powerfully? Is it just as true and powerful in that context, in the lounge room, as it were, as it is in the pulpit? It's hard to see why not, but it's a fascinating question, isn't it? Well, as always, I'm really interested to hear what you think about this, both in terms of how you listen to preaching, if you're mainly a listener rather than a preacher, and also in terms of how you preach, if that's who you are, if you're someone who's a preacher or a trainer of other preachers. Would this be a helpful reframing of what the preaching task is? And would it help us in the way we think about it? I'm really interested to hear what you think and whether you think it has any usefulness or not. As always, send me an email at tonyjpain at me.com. Or you can go over to the website, to thepainfultruth.online, and leave a comment there under the post that's on the website. Now, this is a partner post. It's just for the special few. And of course, as always, you're very free and welcome to share it around, especially among your preacher friends uh, that you might be interested to discuss this with. Well, that's about it for this week. Thanks again for being with me here on The Painful Truth. It's great to be with you as always. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.